So my sermon title today is called "Nail to the Door: The Birth of the Protestant Reformation," and we've been going through the history of the church. We started from you know when Jesus resurrected and went up to heaven and gave this great commission to go share the message of Jesus Christ to the world, the good news about God's love. And so then the message started spreading. We looked at how at first the um, early disciples went to the different major cities in Greece and throughout the Roman Empire,、um, and then from There they got persecuted, and eventually they won、uh, the right to share freely the message. But then the church organized themselves, and we looked at how the church、um, became part of the political structure of the Roman Empire、um, after Emperor Constantine became a Christian himself. And we saw how throughout then the hundreds of years that followed, more and more the idea of Christianity. Was less of this movement where individuals were called to follow Christ and became more of a membership into an institution that meant duties, that meant、um, citizenship rights, that meant also、uh, abuse of privileges by the leadership, and eventually corruption. And so we've been looking, and if you are interested in kind of reviewing any of that, all of our sermons are recorded on our website, melbournecityadventist.org. So if you missed any of that, you're welcome to go back and and watch any of that. But we are now in that point of history where,、um, for hundreds of years, the church、um, had become such a part of the culture.、Uh, and I'm really grateful to David for that great quote that talks about how、um, culture. Doesn't have to compete with Christianity, but often, let's face it, it does. And culture had、um, become something that had kind of engulfed Christianity, and there wasn't a, a clear distinction between the call of Christ and the call of the world. Now, Martin Luther was not the first person to. Okay, all right. I've been told to stop moving.、Um, Martin Luther was not the first. I love walking around when I'm preaching. Sorry,、uh, the, Martin Luther was not the first individual to to raise his voice and say, "Hey, there's something wrong here." However, he was the first man to successfully make a difference, and we'll look at why in a moment. But I want to first give a little background about Martin Luther. He was born on November 10, 1483, in Eisleben,、uh, um, Saxony, which is modern. Southeast Germany, and his parents Hans and Marguerite Luther were of peasant lineage, and so they grew up. He grew up very poor at first,、um, and his mother was very strict, and so he writes about being whipped, you know, quite viciously for little things, and he grew up also being taught the fear of God, and so. Even from a young age, he was very afraid about: Am I going to be able to go to heaven, or am I going to burn forever in hell? And he had this great fear of God.、Um, as his family continued living, his father was a copper miner, and he was able to to gain a little bit of success. And so, by the time Martin Luther was 18 years old, they could sponsor him to get a uni education. So off he went in 1501 to the University of Erfurt, where he received a Master of Arts degree. Now his father wanted him to be a lawyer, but in 1505, so he's 22, he's pretty much done his masters. He's, you know, going down a track of being a lawyer, but he was caught in a horrific thunderstorm, and you know he was walking outside, I suppose, or maybe he was riding his horse. But he was caught in this terrible thunderstorm where he was、um, in fear of his life, and he basically prayed in that moment to Saint Anne, who was this the patron saint of. Mining, and so he prayed to Saint Anne and said, "If you save me, I will become a monk." 
he survived the storm. So he kept his promise because he really was afraid that if he didn't keep his promise, something terrible would happen to him. And he was, like I said, very afraid for his salvation. He was constantly afraid of uh, what God might think of him or what God would do. So he kept his promise despite his father's great displeasure and entered the monastery. But once he was in that monastery, Martin Luther thought, okay, well, maybe now I will find peace. Maybe now God will be pleased with me. And, you know, they had very rigorous hours at the monastery, waking up at the wee hours of the night to do their prayers, you know, kneeling down. They would have to go beg from house to house for food and for money. Um, it was a very humbling, very difficult life. And Martin Luther, despite being a pious monk, despite doing all the right things, had no peace in his heart. A friend helped him discover a little bit um, how to get out of that place of, of that troubled spirit. His friend's name was Johann von Stauffitch. And he said, instead of torturing yourself on account of your sins, throw yourself into the Redeemer's arms. Trust in him in the righteousness of his life, in the atonement of his death. Listen to the Son of God. He became man to give you the assurance of divine favor. Love him who first loved you. And isn't it interesting and amazing that there, there were individuals, despite uh, the corruption, despite um, the lack of Bible knowledge, and despite the false teachings, there were individuals in that church who genuinely understood love of God and shared it. And thanks to that friend, Martin Luther began to kind of take his eyes off of um, his sinfulness and his uh, unworthiness and to start to look to Jesus Christ. And also thanks to um, a discovery, Martin Luther discovered a copy of the Bible, which I explained uh, a few weeks ago was very rare in those days because Bibles um, were very expensive to make. Well, he found a copy. And when he first discovered the Bible, he was amazed because Martin Luther, even though he was a monk, right, even though he had uh, studied theology, even though he had done all these things, had never actually read the entire Bible because it, it was something that was very difficult to access, he'd only heard and read parts of the Gospels and Epistles, whether he was preaching or sharing or lecturing or um, listening in the church pews. So when he discovered other books in the Bible, he was amazed because he didn't even know they existed. And he read the book of Romans. Can you imagine how he felt when he read the book of Romans? And when he, get to, when he got to that line in the book of Romans that says, the just shall live, and what's the word? By faith. The just shall live by faith. All his life, he had tried so hard to please God through his efforts, through his works. But that verse just blew all of that out of the water and said, no, the just shall live by faith. In other words, faith that Jesus Christ himself has done the work that Luther couldn't do and that it was because of Jesus' sacrifice that Luther would be saved. That discovery of that truth led Luther to finally experience and accept peace in his life. He was finally able to get into a relationship with God that was one of love and gratitude and genuine faith rather than fear. As he continued to study the Bible, um, his love for God grew and grew. And in 1510, at the age of 27, he was given the opportunity to be a delegate to a church conference in Rome. This was Luther's first time going to Rome. And, you know, Rome was the center of the Western church. At that time, there were two churches in existence, the Holy Roman Catholic Church and then the, the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church. They had split in uh, 1057. So until 1057, there was only one Christian church. 
after 1057, there were these two existing churches. Well, being part of Germany, uh, Luther was part of the Holman Roman Empire's uh, realm of the Roman Catholic Church. And it was a big deal that he got to be a delegate to go to Rome, and he was so excited. And he got to Rome, and he was shocked. Because in Rome, he discovered that the leadership that he um, encountered there were corrupt. They lived in luxury, um, feasting sumptuously while there were people starving in the streets. They lived in wantonness and sexual immorality. They were making indecent jokes, um, swearing profusely, and just completely living immoral lives. And these were people he had looked up to and people he was looking forward to meeting because he had heard about, um, you know, how Rome is the center of, of the religious leadership at that time. When he experienced this, he was completely disillusioned and discouraged. But while he was in Rome, another significant event occurred. Now, at that time, it was a practice that the Pope could issue what is called an indulgence. An indulgence is basically when um, you were forgiven your sins. It was basically a document saying your sins are forgiven. And there were different ways that you could obtain this indulgence. And one way that you could obtain this indulgence was by doing something worthy. For example, at that time, the Pope had issued um, these, this decree that if you ascended upon your knees, Pilate's staircase... Um, all the way up that you would be able to obtain this indulgence. Now, Pilate's staircase it was in Rome, but it was reported that this was the actual staircase that Jesus Christ had, um, you know, ascended, you know, after leaving the, or descended rather, after leaving Pilate's court in the Roman judgment hall. And of course, miraculously had been brought from Jerusalem here to Rome was the claim, and that if you then ascended those steps on your knees to the very top, your sins would be forgiven. Luther, as um, you know, as many of the others were doing, started ascending the steps, one by one, with everybody else. But as he was doing so, devoutly climbing these steps, suddenly a voice like thunder seemed to come into his head with those words, the just shall live, and what's that word again? By faith. And all of a sudden, the irony of what he was doing struck him, and he got up in shame, and he returned back to Germany, and his world um, started crumbling down. And he began to, um, actually, he did his doctorate at the University of Wittenberg, and he actually became a professor there, and he began to teach more and more that not only... Um, was the Pope not infallible, and nor was he the only person who could interpret the scripture, but he began to teach that indulgences were wrong. Things kind of came to um, a head, so to speak, when in 1517, Pope Leo X um, issued a new round of indulgences. And by the way, this is a, an example of an indulgence. This was in 1497, and this is kind of what it would look like. And if you possess this, then um, you would have your ticket to heaven. Well, in 1517, Pope Leo X wanted to build St. Peter's Basilica, which um, you can still visit today. And as you can see, um, it's a very beautiful, ornate building, and it would take a lot of work and a lot of money. And so the decree went out that you could purchase indulgences. Um, your donations to, to this project would give you that ticket to heaven. 
um, a gentleman named Johann Tetzel, he was actually a Dominican um, monk, um, came to Germ Luther's little town in Germany, and he began to sell these indulgences. He was paid nearly $1,100 a month, and all his traveling expenses paid, and all his eating expenses paid to sell these indulgences. And if you ever read the, the sermons of Johann Tetzel, they're quite something. He goes into great lengths describing the torture of your beloved child in purgatory, um, you know, being tortured and, and, um, he, he makes this great appeal to you as a mother. How could you let that child suffer? Give the donation and you'll guarantee that your child who had died at the age of two or however, you know, young could now enter into heaven thanks to that donation that you're making. Um, and so he would, he would, he would really appeal to your emotions. Um, and he was preaching these sermons and people were flocking to him to purchase these indulgences. And why wouldn't they? Because at that time that for them, that's all they knew was, was the way to heaven. Martin Luther was furious. Um, and so on October 31st, 1517, he went to the doors of this, of this church here. Um, and he chose that date because they would have a lot of relics at that church. And it was taught that on All Saints Day, uh, there would be a special kind of collection of relics put out and that if you went to visit, then you would gain more merits towards your ability to get to heaven or for someone else to be able to get to heaven. And so he chose this opportune moment and he nailed what's called the 95 Thesis to the door. Now, what the 95 Thesis was, was basically 95 points, statements that he made um, condemning the indulgences, condemning the idea that um, only the, that church leadership could um, interpret the scripture, um, talking about how every single believer of Christ is part of the priesthood of believers and really challenging the structure and the teachings of the church at that time. Thanks to the printing press, um, he had actually sent a copy of this also to the Archbishop Albert of Mans. And thanks to the printing press, the 95 Theses of Martin Luther spread like wildfire throughout Europe. Um, within a few weeks and months, it had just gone throughout the Holy Roman Empire. Now, this would not reach church leadership very well. Um, they were not very happy to, to hear about this young, little young man. He was, he was um, at that time, I think, probably 33, 32. Um, you know, who, do, who does he think he is? And so the church was quite unhappy, and they ordered him to recant the 95 Theses by the authority of the Pope. Uh, Luther responded by saying he would not recant unless scripture proved him wrong. Um, he continued to teach. He continued to, to share um, these, these teachings that were contrary to what the church taught. And then finally, in 1521, Luther was officially excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. Now, he was not, like I said, the first person to have raised his voice and to have um, try to bring about reformation in the church. There have been many before. In fact, hundreds of years before, um, there was a man named Wycliffe. There was Huss. There were, there were many others who were killed, silenced, um, forgotten. But what was unique about Martin Luther was that he was sharing this 
call for reformation at just the right time. It was, a, it was an idea whose time had come. Because, because he was in Germany, um, and at that time, the different nation states belonged to the Holy Roman Empire, uh, which was ruled by Charles V. And in conjunction with Charles V and the Pope, so between the church and the state, there was this close tie, and everyone had to pay allegiance to both of, of those heads. But the German princes were getting a little tired of being told what to do. And so they were ready to back Martin Luther, their citizen. And so uh, Martin Luther had the protection of the German princes that allowed his influence to actually spread. For example, Martin Luther was summoned in March of 1521 before what's called the Diet of Worms. It's actually not a Diet of Worms. It's a diet is just a, a phrase meaning um, a formal assembly. Uh, secular assembly, and Worms was the name of the place in Germany. And so here Martin Luther is before pretty much all the representatives of the Holy Roman Empire. So Charles V, the secular emperor, is there, along with the different princes and different representatives of the different empire. And he was summoned, and they um, asked him to recant his statement. So he's already been excommunicated by the church, but now the state is kind of going after him. And there's a famous statement that Martin Luther said there. He said, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. And some people say he said, and here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Well, they didn't like that little speech very much. Um, they banned all his writings. They declared him a convicted heretic. And it was only through a miracle that he actually got away. Um, and his friends managed to hide him at a castle in Germany. And so in seclusion, Martin Luther translated the Bible into a, the German language and continued to write in his writings, continued to spread. And he actually died of old age. Um, and natural causes, I should say. Um, and so the influence of Martin Luther was not just that he had something to share, but that he had enough support of followers who were religious followers as well as political people in political influence who backed him up and allowed not only for his life to be extended, but for his ideas to be shared. In 1529, when uh, Charles V, the emperor, revoked a provision that allowed the ruler of each German state to choose whether or not they could enforce um, this ban against Martin Luther, a number of princes and other supporters of Luther issued a protest, declaring that their allegiance to God trumped their allegiance to the emperor. And so German secular princes um, cited their allegiance to God as their primary reason for ignoring the secular ban by the Roman emperor to basically get rid of Martin Luther. And because of their protest, um, their opponents began to call them these Protestants uh, because of their protest. And that name actually began uh, to be used for anyone who believed that the church should be reformed, um, became known as Protestants um, after 1529. It's interesting when you look at the different denominations we have today. I don't know if you ever wondered, you know, why do we have Lutherans? Why do we have Anglicans? Why do we have, you know, um, 
Baptists and Presbyterians and these different denominations, well, where did they come from? It's when you go back in time and you look at how in the beginning there were only, you know, one main church and then there were two churches and then you have Luther who was sharing something that was in at first an effort to return, to reform his current church. Luther wasn't trying to go break off and start a new church. He was just trying to bring reform to his current church. But because they weren't well, many of them, especially leadership, were not willing to listen. They basically kicked him out, and he was forced then to, along with the, his followers, create a new group. And that group later became known as Lutherans. And it's interesting when you look at history, because out of his example of wanting to go back to the Bible, of wanting to rediscover the truth, more people discovered, hey, in addition to this great concept of salvation by faith, in addition to that, there's a lot of other things that the Bible teaches that we have not been teaching and practicing. And the irony is that when they brought those to light, some of the followers of Luther said, oh, that's too much. That's too much. And kicked them out and persecuted them. And then they would go out and then another truth would be discovered. For example, hey, let's not, you know, sprinkle uh, babies and call that baptism because they don't have a choice. Let's let's immerse them in water as an adult. And that was something that was too radical for many, and they got kicked out, and they were killed by drowning, and etc. And then they became the Anabaptists, and so forth. Here's one uh, person's kind of interpretation of the different denominations. Um, it's not entirely accurate. It's a bit simplified. But just to give you an idea, like I said, 1054 is when you had the Christian church that was undivided, split into the, the Eastern Orthodox Church that we still have today, and then the Catholic Church that we still have today. And obviously a lot of these um, churches have evolved over time, so they weren't, they're not necessarily the same doctrinally today than they were, um, you know, a thousand years ago. But out of, um, you can see how different branches came out, 1534, the Anglican Church. Um, down here you see the Lutheran, 1517. Um, is when they date that, and you've got Calvinists, and we're going to be looking at some of these in, in the weeks to come, uh, and a Baptist, etc. And basically, I'm showing this just to show that the reason we have different denominations today is because there were differences, there were truths that individuals and groups decided, you know what, this is something that we want to to share, this is something we want to champion, and they were kicked out for doing so. So then they had to form a new group so that they could worship together. If you look here in 1844, um, it says Adventists, and um, we're going to be going sharing in the weeks to come kind of how the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which is what this church is a part of, um, is actually a very recent movement. Um, here's another person's kind of rendition of, of the Protestant denominations, um, and you can see kind of some of them, how they're related, like the Episcopal Church is only in the U.S., and it's really the Anglican Church. Um, so it was funny because when I moved here, I was like, what's the Anglican Church? Um, then I realized, because in America we have Episcopal churches. Um, and they're, they're slightly different, but, but sister churches. And so you can kind of take a look at this um, to just to look at how the different denominations came at different times. But I want to raise an important question. Some people look at this and say, we're all Christian. Do the differences matter? A lot of people say, the difference shouldn't matter. Um, it's not a big deal. Let's just all join as one. While I agree that we should not have this mentality of us versus them, because I think that mentality leads to that kind of hostility and persecution that we have seen for hundreds of years, 
Um, I don't think that's a good thing. However, I also think that it's a disservice and a dishonor to the memory and the legacy of the reformers if we say differences don't matter. Because Martin Luther and the many reformers that, that went before him and came after him died for those differences. And so if we just simply dismiss them as minor things that are insignificant, then what did they die for? What was their movement all about? And so I don't think we should dismiss them. I think we need to value those differences. I, need to, I think we need to look into them, study them, talk about them, um, and really um, encounter what the Bible says about these different items. What is it about these doctrines? What is it about these teachings that were so important to the reformers, and why are they important to us now? Martin Luther King Jr., who, uh, who's a namesake for Martin Luther, the reformer, right? If you think about this great civil rights leader in America and the impact he had had um, in America and in the world, it was because of the, the small differences that he fought for. The right to sit in the front of the bus if you were an African-American. Because in that time, they had these segregated um, bus seats where if you were a white person, you could get on the bus and sit in the front row and you would start from the front and then, you know, as you fill up, you would go towards the back. Whereas if you were an African-American, that when you stepped uh, in, you have to pay, exit, go into the back door and sit at the very back and work your way forward. And if um, a white person um, needed your seat, you had to get up. And there's a famous story of Rosa Parks and this elderly woman who said, no, I refuse to get up, right? Um, but, but Martin Luther King Jr. was also one of those individuals that said, that difference of that seat being the front or in the back, it matters. It matters. And I'm going to champion and fight for that. Or the segregation of schools, of children in, in a, a black school versus a white school. He says, I'm going to fight for that segregation, or the segregation of, of housing districts, of having areas that were only for white people versus black people. He fought for those, right? It was those minor differences that the majority would call minor. The majority would say, I'll just let it go, be content. But he was saying, no, these differences matter. This is something I'm willing to champion for, and it was something that he died for, ultimately. Him and the many others throughout history who have dared to stand up and say, this is the truth. This is something that I'm willing to fight for. This is something that we need to examine and study. I think that in the same way, we are faced with the challenge of, on the one hand, being part of a community, being part of a church, being part of an institution that has benefits on the one hand, that has a history, that has um, had many people study and have come, brought us thus far. But on the other hand, we have that challenge to personally study and to always uh, go back and be willing to be humble enough to talk and to research and to examine how much more can we learn. There needs to be a balance between that communal corporate study and accountability as well as the individual conviction of when you realize that something is right. There's a couple of Bible passages I want us to look at. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, the importance of church community is highlighted. It says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up 
until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of dark teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. In other words, it's saying here that, that we need a church, we need a community, we need a body because God gives different spiritual gifts to every single person. To some, they are teachers, Right? They're able to take that concept and, and share it in a way that is easy to absorb. Some are prophets. They're called to, like Martin Luther, stand and say, this is the truth. There, this is, uh, there is need for reform. There is need for change. They're kind of the champions and the pioneers. To some, um, you know, in the Bible, there's many kinds of spiritual gifts. And we actually need different people with different spiritual gifts to be, as it says here, the complete body of Christ. Some are the mouthpiece. Some are the hands. Some are the feet. And so we need that church community. We need that accountability. And this passage especially highlights we need the teachers. We need the pastors. We need those who are able to, um, to, to take that extra time to study. But that also needs to be balanced, right, that church community, with your personal study and conviction. And sometimes that does mean taking a stand against the majority. There's a story in the book of Acts um, history repeats itself. And so when you think about the early Christians, they had to speak against the majority um, when they were trying to share with their Jewish nation the truth about Jesus Christ. It was their heart's desire that their families, their friends, their neighbors, their relatives would accept Christ as the Messiah. And some did, but some did not. And it's interesting when you look at this reaction, there's two kinds of responses. In Acts chapter 17, it says, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. So on the one hand, we have... Um, many people who heard the message and said, you know what? I believe that that is the truth. I'm willing to stand up and um, forsake my previous worldview and join this movement of Christianity. But then there was another response. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the other post bond and let them go. And so on the one hand, you've got individuals who, who listened, who studied, and said, you know what, yep, that's the truth. And then others who rejected the message, but not only rejected, they went as far as, they were so defensive about their worldview. They were so defensive about their uh, beliefs that they went then and persecuted 
um, Paul and Silas and Jason and, and the other Christians who were there. This caused the Christians to then to leave. And it says in verse 10, As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. They never gave up. They just kept going. They were like, oh, got, got persecuted there. Let's go to another place. Let's keep sharing. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with, real eager, with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So we hear, we have here an example of a group of people. It says um, that they studied, they tested what was shared with what they had in their hands. And they were able to say, yep, what you say is true. We're going to accept what you say. And I'm sure they had to then, as a result, face persecution and were probably kicked out of their synagogues. And, you know, they had to go through that whole process of starting over in a new community. But they were willing to do so because of their conviction. And so we have this balance of accountability, a need for transparency, a need for exchange of ideas and thoughts and feedback as we study the Bible together, corporately, as well as individually. I believe that we have a challenge that um, can and should be accepted. Um, Ellen White, who was an inspired woman writer, she wrote, Age will not make error into truth, and truth can afford to be fair. No true doctrine will lose anything by close investigation. I like that statement that truth can afford to be fair. We don't have to be afraid of studying for this. Sometimes we think, what if I study and I come to a conclusion that's different from everything I've ever known? And because of that fear, we never go into it. Right? Or we're afraid to talk to people about what we believe because what if you challenge us and we actually don't have an answer? And we'll have to all of a sudden change what we believe. But truth can afford to be fair. If truth is truth, it will stand up to the test of time. It will stand up to the test of study, of investigation. And so I want to challenge all of us as we go into our discussion and as you go into your everyday life. I pray that we would have the commitment to study. That we would have the courage to ask God to give us that discernment, to give us that wisdom, um, to give us that conviction and ultimately, that courage to stand if need be against the majority and to be able to um, ask God to help us bring about a more free, a more um, truthful revelation of who God is to the world and to ourselves. And so I pray that the light of the Reformation that began hundreds of years ago would not die out just because we think we know it all, but that we would continue to champion the cause of truth, that we would continue to go back to the Word of God, and that we would continue to have the courage to discuss with each other, share with each other, and the rest of the world what it is about Jesus Christ that is so amazing. So may God bless your journey. And as we discuss... Um, there are some interesting and some heavy questions, um, but I pray that in our vulnerability, we'll be able to truly discover the God that is worthy of service.